Chapter One of the Gorilla Hunters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adele de Pignoroles. The Gorilla Hunters by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter One, in which the hunters are introduced. It was five o'clock in the afternoon. There can be no doubt whatever as to that. Old Angs may say what she pleases. She has a habit of doing so. But I know for certain, because I looked at my watch not ten minutes before it happened, that it was exactly five o'clock in the afternoon when I received a most singular and in every way remarkable visit, a visit which has left an indelible impression on my memory, as well it might, for independent of its singularity and unexpectedness, one of its results was the series of strange adventures which are faithfully detailed in this volume. It happened thus. I was seated in an armchair in my private study in a small town on the west coast of England. It was a splendid afternoon, and it was exactly five o'clock. Mark that. Not that there is anything singular about the mere fact, neither is it in any way mixed up with the thread of this tale, but old Angs is very obstinate, singularly positive, and I have a special desire that she should see it in print, that I have not given in on that point. Yes, it was five precisely, and a beautiful evening. I was ruminating, as I frequently do, on the pleasant memories of bygone days, especially the happy days that I spent long ago among the coral islands of the Pacific, when the tap at the door aroused me. Come in. A visitor, sir, said old Angs, my landlady, and he'll know guy his name. Old Angs, I may remark, is a Scotchwoman. Show him in, said I. Maybe he's a pickpocket, suggested Angs. I'll take my chance at that. Ay, that's like ye. Cares for naithin. Losh, man, what if he cuts your throat? I'll take my chance at that, too. Only do show him in, my good woman, said I, with a gesture of impatience that caused the excellent, though obstinate, old creature to depart, grumbling. In another moment a quick step was heard on the stair, and a stranger burst into the room, shut the door in my landlady's face as she followed him, and locked it. I was naturally surprised, though not alarmed, by the abrupt and eccentric conduct of my visitor, who did not condescend to take off his hat, but stood with his arms folded on his breast, gazing at me and breathing hard. "'You are agitated, sir. Pray be seated,' I said, pointing to a chair. The stranger, who was a little man and evidently a gentleman, made no reply, but seizing a chair, placed it exactly before me, sat down on it as he would have seated himself on a horse, rested his arms on the back, and stared me in the face. "'You are disposed to be facetious,' said I, smiling, for I never take offence without excessively good reason. "'Not at all, by no means,' said he, taking off his hat and throwing it recklessly on the floor. "'You are Mr. Rover, I presume?' "'The same, sir, at your service.' "'Are you? Oh, that's yet to be seen. Pray, is your Christian name Ralph?' "'It is,' said I, in some surprise at the coolness of my visitor. "'Ah, just so. Christian name Ralph, t'other name Rover. Ralph Rover. Very good. Age twenty-two yesterday, eh?' "'My birthday was yesterday, and my age is twenty-two. 
you appear to know more of my private history than I have the pleasure of knowing of yours. Pray, sir, may I—but bless me, are you unwell? I asked this in some alarm, because the little man was rolling about in his seat, holding his sides, and growing very red in the face. Oh, no, not at all, perfectly well, never was better in my life, he said, becoming all at once preternaturally grave. You were once in the Pacific, lived on a coral island— I did. Oh, don't trouble yourself to answer. Just shut up for a minute or two. You were rather a soft green youth then, and you don't seem to be much harder or less verdant now. Sir! I exclaimed, getting angry. Just so, continued he, and you knew a young rascal there. I know a rascal here, I exclaimed, starting up, whom I'll kick. What? cried the little stranger, also starting up and capsizing the chair. "'Ralph Rober, has time and sunburning in war so changed my visage that you cannot recognize Peterkin?' I almost gasped for breath. "'Peterkin! Peterkin Gay!' I exclaimed. "'I am not prone to indulge in effeminate demonstration, but I am not ashamed to confess that when I gazed on the weather-beaten, though ruddy countenance of my old companion, and observed the eager glance of his bright blue eyes, I was quite overcome, and rushed violently into his arms. I may also add that until that day I had had no idea of Peterkin's physical strength, for during the next five minutes he twisted me about and spun me round and round my own room, until my brain began to reel, and I was fain to cry him mercy. "'So you're all right. The same jolly young old Weizacker in whiskers and long coat,' cried Peterkin. "'Come now, Ralph, sit down if you can. "'I mean to stay with you all evening, and all night, and all to-morrow, "'and all the next day, so we'll have lots of time to fight our battles o'er again. "'Meanwhile, compose yourself, and I'll tell you what I've come about. "'Of course, my first and chief reason was to see your face, old boy, "'but I have another reason, too, a very peculiar reason. "'I have a proposal to make and a plan to unfold, both of em stunners. "'They'll shut you up and screw you down.' "'and altogether flabbergasted you when you hear em. "'So sit down and keep quiet. Do.' "'I sat down accordingly, and tried to compose myself. "'But, to say truth, I was so much overjoyed and excited "'by the sight of my old friend and companion "'that I had some difficulty at first "'in fixing my attention on what he said, "'the more especially that he spoke with extreme volubility, "'and interrupted his discourse very frequently "'in order to ask questions or to explain.' "'Now, old fellow,' he began, "'here goes, and mind you don't interrupt me. "'Well, I mean to go, and I mean you to go with me, too. "'But I forgot, perhaps you won't be able to go. "'What are you?' "'What am I?' "'I, your profession, your calling, lawyer, M.D., Scrivener, which?' "'I am a naturalist.' "'A what?' "'A naturalist.' "'Ralph,' said Peterkin slowly, "'have you been long troubled with that complaint?' "'Yes,' I replied, laughing. "'I have suffered from it from my earliest infancy, more or less.' "'I thought so,' rejoined my companion, shaking his head gravely. "'I fancied that I observed the development of that disease "'when we lived together on the Coral Island. "'It doesn't bring you in many thousands a year, does it?' "'No,' said I, "'it does not. "'I am only an amateur. 
having a sufficiency of this world's goods to live on without working for my bread. But although my dear father at his death left me a small fortune which yields me three hundred a year, I do not feel entitled to lead the life of an idler in this busy world, where so many are obliged to toil night and day for the bare necessities of life. I have, therefore, taken to my favorite studies as a sort of business, and flatter myself that I have made one or two not unimportant discoveries, and added a few mites to the sum of human knowledge. A good deal of my time is spent in scientific roving expeditions throughout the country, and in contributing papers to several magazines. While I was thus speaking, I observed that Peterkin's face was undergoing the most remarkable series of changes of expressions, which, as I concluded, merged into a smile of beaming delight, as he said, "'Ralph, you're a trump.' "'Possibly,' said I, "'you are right. But setting that question aside for the present, let me remind you that you have not yet told me where you mean to go.' "'I mean,' said Peterkin slowly, placing both hands on his knees and looking me steadily in the face, "'I mean to go a-hunting in—but I forgot. You don't know that I'm a hunter, a somewhat famous hunter.' "'Of course I don't. You are so full of your plans and proposals that you have not yet told me where you have been, or what doing these six years.' "'And you have never once written to me all that time, shall be, fellow. I thought you were dead.' "'Did you go into mourning for me, Ralph?' "'No, of course not.' "'A pretty fellow you are to find fault. You thought that I, your oldest and best friend, was dead, and you did not go into mourning.' How could I write to you when you parted from me without giving me your address? It was a mere chance my finding you out even now. I was taking a quiet cup of coffee in the commercial room of a hotel not far distant, when I heard a stranger speaking of his friend Ralph Rover, the philosopher, so I plunged at him promiscuously and made him give me your address. But I have corresponded with Jack ever since we parted on the pier at Dover. What? Jack? Jack Martin? I exclaimed, as a warm gush of feeling filled my heart at the sound of his well-remembered name. Is Jack alive? Alive? I should think so. If possible, he's more alive than ever, for I should suppose he must be full-grown now, which he was not when we last met. He and I have corresponded regularly. He lives in the north of England, and by good luck happens to be just now within thirty miles of this town. You don't mean to say, Ralph, that you have never met. Never. The very same mistake that it happened with you occurred between him and me. We parted vowing to correspond as long as we should live, and three hours after I remembered that we had neglected to exchange our addresses, so that we could not correspond. I have often, often made inquiries both for you and him, but have always failed. I never heard of Jack from the time we parted at Dover till today. Then no doubt you thought us both dead, and yet you did not go into mourning for either of us. Oh, Ralph, Ralph, I had entertained too good an opinion of you. But tell me about Jack, said I, impatient to hear more concerning my dear old comrade. Not just now, my boy, more of him in a few minutes. First let us return to the point. What was it? Oh, uh, about my being a celebrated hunter. A very nimrod, at least a miniature copy. Well, Ralph, since we last met, I have been all over the world, right round and round it. I'm a lieutenant in the Navy now, at least I was a week ago. I've been fighting with the Kaffirs and the Chinamen, and have been punishing the rascally sepoys in India, and been hunting elephants in Ceylon and tiger-shooting in the jungles, 
and harpooning whales in the polar seas, and shooting lions at the Cape. Oh, you have no notion where all I've been. It's a perfect marvel I've turned up here alive. But there's one beast I've not yet seen, and I've resolved to see him and shoot him too. But, said I, interrupting, what mean you by saying that you were a lieutenant in the Navy a week ago? I mean that I've given it up. I'm tired of the sea. I only value it as a means of getting from one country to another. The land's a land for me. You must know that an old uncle, a rich old uncle of mine, whom I never saw, died lately and left me his whole fortune. Of course he died in India. All old uncles who die suddenly and leave unexpected fortunes to unsuspecting nephews are old Indian uncles, and mine was no exception to the general rule. So I'm independent like you, Ralph, only I've got three or four thousand a year instead of hundreds, I believe. But I'm not sure, and don't care, and I'm determined now to go on a long hunting expedition. What think ye of all that, my boy? In truth, said I, it would puzzle me to say what I think. I am so filled with surprise by all you tell me. But you forget that you have not yet told me to which part of the world you mean to go, and what sort of beast it is you are so determined to see and shoot if you can. If I can, echoed Peterkin, with a contemptuous curl of the lip, did I not tell you that I was a celebrated hunter? Without meaning to boast, I may tell you that there is no peradventure in my shooting. If I only get there and see the brute within long range, I'll ha, won't I? Get where and see what? Get to Africa and see the gorilla, cried Peterkin, while a glow of enthusiasm lighted up his eyes. You have heard of the gorilla, Ralph, of course, the great ape, the enormous puggy, the huge baboon, the man-monkey, that we've been hearing so much of for some years back, and that the niggers on the African coast used to dilate about till they caused the very hair of my head to stand upon end. I'm determined to shoot a gorilla, or prove him to be a myth, and I mean you to come and help me, Ralph. He's quite in your way. A bit of natural history, I suppose, although he seems, by all accounts, to be a very unnatural monster. Jack shall go too. I'm resolved on that. And we three shall roam the wild woods again, as we did in days of yore, and— "'Hold, Peterkin,' said I, interrupting. "'How do you know that Jack will go?' "'How do I know? Intuitively, of course. "'I shall write to him to-night. "'The post does not leave till ten. "'He'll get it to-morrow at breakfast, "'and will catch the forenoon coach, "'which will bring him down here by two o'clock, "'and then we'll begin our preparations at once "'and talk the matter over at dinner. "'So you see, it's all cut and dry. "'Give me a sheet of paper, and I'll write at once. "'Ah, here's a bit. Now a pen.' "'Bless me, Ralph, haven't you got a quill? "'Who ever heard of a philosophical naturalist writing with steel? "'Now then, here goes. "'Bloved Jack. "'Will that do to begin with, eh? "'I'm afraid it's too affectionate. "'He'll think it's from a lady friend. "'But it can't be altered. "'Here I am, and here's Ralph. "'Ralph Rover. Think of that. "'I say, Ralph, I've put six marks of admiration there. "'I've found him out. "'Do come to see us. "'Excruciatingly important business.' Ever thine, Peterkin Gay. Will that bring him, do you think? I think it will, I said, laughing. Then off with it, Ralph, cried my volatile friend, jumping up and looking hastily round for the bell-rope. Not being able to find it, my bull-pull being an unobtrusive knob and not a rope, he rushed to the door, unlocked it, darted out, and uttered a tremendous roar, which was followed by a clatter and a scream from old Angs, whom he had upset and tumbled over. 
It was curious to note the sudden change that took place in Peterkin's face, voice, and manner, as he lifted the poor old woman, who was very thin and light, in his arms, and carrying her into the room, placed her in my easy-chair. Real anxiety was depicted in his countenance, and he set her down with a degree of care and tenderness that quite amazed me. I was myself very much alarmed at first. "'My poor dear old woman,' said Peterkin, supporting my landlady's head, "'my stupid haste, I fear you are hurt.' "'Heck, it's nay hurt, it's deed I am, fair deed, killed be wallum scammerin' young bluggard. Oh, my poor head!' The manner and tone in which this was said convinced me that old Angs was more frightened than injured. In a few minutes the soothing tones and kind manner of my friend had such an effect upon her that she declared she was better, and believed after all that she was only a wee brit frightened. Nay, so completely was she conciliated, that she insisted on conveying the note to the post-office, despite Peterkin's assurance that he would not hear of it. Finally she hobbled out of the room with the letter in her hand. It is interesting to note how that, in most of the affairs of humanity, things turn out very different, often totally different, from what we had expected or imagined. During the remainder of that evening Peter Kane and I talked frequently and much of our old friend Jack Martin. We recalled his manly yet youthful countenance, his bold, lion-like courage, his broad shoulders and gentle winning smile, and although we knew that six years must have made an immense difference in his personal appearance, for he was not much more than eighteen when we last parted. We could not think of him except as a hardy, strapping sailor-boy. We planned, too, how we would meet him at the coach, how we would stand aside in the crowd until he began to look about for us in surprise, and then one of us would step forward and ask if he wished to be directed to any particular part of town, and so lead him on and talk to him as a stranger for some time before revealing who we were. And much more to the same effect. But when the next day came our plans and our conceptions were utterly upset. A little before two we sauntered down to the coach office, and waited impatiently for nearly twenty minutes. Of course the coach was late. It always is on such occasions. "'Suppose he does not come,' said I. "'What a fellow you are,' cried Peterkin, "'to make uncomfortable suppositions. Let us rather suppose that he does come.' "'Oh, then, it would be all right. But if he does not come, what then?' Why, then, it would be all wrong, and we should have to return home and eat our dinner in the sulks, that's all. As my companion spoke, we observed the coach come sweeping round the turn of the road about half a mile distance. In a few seconds it dashed into the town at a full gallop, and finally drew up abruptly opposite the door of the inn, where were assembled the usual group of hostlers and waiters and people who expected friends by the coach. "'He's not there.' whispered Peterkin, in deep disappointment. At least he's not on the outside, and Jack would never travel inside of a coach even in bad weather, much less in fine. That's not him on the back seat beside the fat old woman with the blue bundle, surely. It's very like him, but too young, much too young. There's a great giant on a man on the box seat with a beard like a grenadier shago, and a stout old gentleman behind him with gold spectacles. That's all, except two boys further aft, and three ladies in the cabin." Oh, what a bore! Although deeply disappointed at the non-arrival of Jack, I could with difficulty refrain from smiling at the rueful and woe-begone countenance of my poor companion. It was evident that he could not bear disappointment with equanimity, 
and I was on the point of offering some consolatory remarks, when my attention was attracted by the little old woman with the blue bundle, who went up to the gigantic man with the black beard, and in the gentlest possible tone of voice asked her if he could direct her to the White House. "'No, madame,' replied the big man hastily. "'I'm a stranger here.' The little old woman was startled by his abrupt answer. "'Deary me, sir, no offence, I hope.' She then turned to Peterkin, and put the same question, possibly under a vague sort of impression, that if a gigantic frame betokened a gruff nature, diminutive stature must necessarily imply extreme amiability. If so, she must have been much surprised as well as disappointed, for Peterkin, rendered irascible by disappointment, turned short round and said sharply, "'Why, madame, how can I tell you where the White House is, unless you say which White House you want? Half the houses of town are white.' "'At least they're dirty white,' he added bitterly, as he turned away. "'I think I can direct you, ma'am,' said I, stepping quickly up with a bland smile, in order to counteract, if possible, my companion's rudeness. "'Thank you, sir, kindly,' said the little old woman. "'I'm glad to find some little civility in the town.' "'Come with me, ma'am. I am going past the big white house, and will show you the way.' "'And pray, sir,' said the big stranger, stepping up to me as I was about to move away. Can you recommend me to a good hotel? I replied that I could, that there was one in the immediate vicinity of the White House, and that if he would accompany me I would show him the way. All this I did purposefully in a very affable and obliging tone and manner, for I hold that example is infinitely better than precept, and always endeavor, if possible, to overcome evil with good. I offered my arm to the old woman, who thanked me and took it. "'What?' whispered Peterkin. "'You don't mean me to take this great ugly gorilla in tow?' "'Of course,' replied I, laughing, as I led the way. Immediately I entered into conversation with my companion, and I heard the gorilla attempt to do so with Peterkin, but from the few sharp cross replies that reached my ear, I became aware that he was unsuccessful. In the course of a few minutes, however, he appeared to have overcome his companion's ill-humour, for I overheard their voices growing louder and more animated as they walked behind me. Suddenly I heard a shout, and turning hastily round, observed Peterkin struggling in the arms of the gorilla. Amazed beyond measure at the sight, and firmly persuaded that a cowardly assault had been made upon my friend, I seized the old woman's umbrella, as the only available weapon, and flew to the rescue. "'Jack, my boy, can it be possible?' gasped Peterkin. "'I believe it is,' replied Jack, laughing. "'Ralph, my dear old fellow, how are you?' I stood petrified. I believed that I was in a dream. I know not what occurred during the next five minutes. All I could remember, with anything like distinctness, was a succession of violent screams from the little old woman, who fled shouting thieves and murder at the full pitch of her voice. We never saw that old woman again, but I made a point of returning her umbrella to the White House. Gradually we became collected and sane. "'Why, Jack, how did you find us out?' cried Peterkin, as we all hurried on to my lodgings, totally forgetful of the little old woman, whom, as I have said, we never saw again, but who, I sincerely trust, arrived at the White House in safety. "'Find you out? I knew you the moment I set eyes on you.' Ralph puzzled me for a second. He has grown so much stouter. But I should know your nose, Peterkin, at a mile off. Well, Jack, I did not know you, retorted Peterkin. 
but I'm safe never again to forget you. Such a great hairy Cossack as you have become. Why, what do you mean by it? I couldn't help it, please, pleaded Jack. I grew in spite of myself, but I think I've stopped now. It's time, remarked Peterkin. Jack had indeed grown to a size that men seldom attain to without losing in grace infinitely more than they gain in bulk but he had retained all the elegance of form and sturdy vigor of action that had characterized him as a boy. He was fully six feet two inches in his stockings, but so perfect were his proportions that his great height did not become apparent until you came up close to him. Full half of his handsome manly face was hid by a bushy black beard and mustache, and his curly hair had been allowed to grow luxuriantly, so that his whole aspect was more like to the descriptions we have of one of the old Scandinavian Vikings than a gentleman of the present time. In whatever company he chanced to be, he towered high above everyone else, and I am satisfied that, had he walked down Whitechapel, the horse guards would have appeared small beside him, for he possessed not only great length of limb, but immense breadth of chest and shoulders. During our walk to my lodgings, Peterkin hurriedly stated his plan and proposal, which caused Jack to laugh very much at first, but in a few minutes he became grave, and said slowly, "'That will just suit. It will do exactly.' "'What will do exactly? Do be more explicit, man,' said Peterkin, with some impatience. "'I'll go with you, my boy.' "'Will you?' cried Peterkin, seizing his hand and shaking it violently. "'I knew you would. I said it, didn't I, Ralph?' "'And now we shall be sure of a gorilla, if there's one in Africa, for I'll use you as a stalking horse.' "'Indeed!' exclaimed Jack. "'Yes, I'll put a bearskin or some sort of fur on your shoulders, and tie a lady's boa to you for a tail, and send you into the woods. The gorillas will be sure to mistake you for a relative until you get quite close. Then you'll take one pace to the left with the left foot, as the volunteers say. I'll take one to the front with the right.' at fifty yards. Ready, present, bang! And down goes the huge puggy with a bullet right between his two eyes. There. And Ralph's agreed to go, too. Oh, Peterkin, I've done nothing of the sort. You proposed it. Well, and isn't that the same thing? I wonder, Ralph, that you can give way to such mean-spirited prevarication. What? It's not prevarication? Don't say that now. You know it is. Ha! you may laugh, my boy, but you have promised to go with me and Jack to Africa, and go you shall. And so, reader, it was ultimately settled, and in the course of two weeks more we three were on our way to the land of the slave, the black savage, and the gorilla. End of chapter 1 of The Gorilla Hunters Recording by Adelde Pinoroles